welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo. We specialize in author interviews, audiobook, and podcast production, as well as the prestigious Firebird Book Awards. We also feature our fun and short podcast that allows authors to record their own writing tip to share on our Boom Bang Oh My Gosh Wow podcast. And you can find that along with the rest of our offerings at speakuptalkradio.com. But for right now, I am so happy to share a recent Firebird Book Award winning author with you. He is Lukeman Clark, and his winning book is titled The Alexandria Scrolls. Award winning author, Lukeman lives with his wife, Dr. Linda Strahan, and two cats in Riverside, California. He works as a full time writer and gardener in his own backyard. But long ago, he earned his BA in Communications, English Lit, and an MBA in International Marketing. From there, he went on to executive positions in banking, finance and investment, petroleum equipment manufacture, art museum management, farmer's market management, and nonprofit strategy and fundraising consulting. There's just so much more to find out, but I want to get started. So welcome to the network, Lukeman. Hi, Pat. Thank you for having me. I'm amazed listening to that that I've done so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that me? Everybody says that when they listen back, they're like, whoa, I actually did all that. Don't you just love life's journey? I do. It's always full of surprises and, you know, our, our best planning. <laughs> um, what do they say? Our best thinking got us to where we are. <laughs> I know. I love some of the um, differences. We've got finance and investment, petroleum equipment, art museum management, and farmer's market management. So I guess management is management, right? I guess so. I think it's fair to say I have been working to find my place in this world. And uh, so I've done a, a lot of things. Um, you know, I actually started writing when I was 10 years old, and it's just taken me a long time to get here. That's <laughs> <laughs> you know what? All of the experience, though, along the way makes you who you are today and, and probably colors your writing as well. I'm sure it does, yes. Yes, for sure. Well, listen, congratulations on the book win. That was a happy, happy day for me to share that with you. It was a very happy day for me to hear about it, too. <laughs> I'm glad. All right, the Alexandria Scrolls. Let's just dig right in. Give us, okay. a, give us a peek. It's a, actually a trilogy. It turned out that way. Uh, the first book, which is uh, the Alexandria Scrolls, and it's called In Her Own Words. Uh, it represents a translation of five scrolls of a fictional autobiography recounting the life of Hypatia of Alexandria. Uh, she begins her story from when she was 11 years old, and this is well before she takes the name Hypatia in my book. Uh, to start, we discover she has a twin sister, and that the girls are daughters of a Roman military officer, and a medicine woman from Nubia, which is to the south of Egypt. The story gets propelled by the great tsunami of 365 A.D. that destroyed much of Alexandria and killed thousands. And separated from her family, uh, the girl finds refuge and an education in the desert monastery where she also encounters a menacing catechist named Theophilus, who later becomes the bishop of Alexandria and he becomes obsessed with her. Well, how Hypatia ultimately deals with this threat, along with many other trials and problems, such as what really happens to the Great Library of Alexandria, uh, covers the next 40 years or so of Hypatia's story. 
Readers have discovered, too, the different kind of Hypatia Alexandria from the wiki legends, one which hopefully is more sensitive to the realities of the 4th century Egypt under Roman occupation. And that's it in a nutshell. Why was this of interest to you? I first encountered this legend, dare I say a myth, of Hypatia of Alexandria around 20 years ago. I was looking for a character to round out an epic poem that I wrote called Egyptian Elegies. I have to tell you, the more I researched Hypatia, it became clear there's really no evidence for much that's attributed to her, like having been a stellar mathematician, an innovative scientist, or even a groundbreaking philosopher. Over the centuries, her name became a political tool, invoked for or against the Catholic Church, and in the process, this Egyptian woman was completely Europeanized. So why the discrepancy? Why are they promoting that? Because when you look her up, this is what you find, mathematicians, scientists. Uh, why are they telling us that story? Yeah, like I said, initially, there's, I found there was little evidence for the Hypatia legend and how she's become an icon, much in the same way as Helen of Troy has. What happened, though, was... Uh, during, I guess, what we call our Enlightenment period in Europe, uh, th there was a lot of conflict between three thinkers, three thinkers like uh, Voltaire and others against uh, the clergy. And they happened upon uh, her, and this whole legend sort of sprung up, and you know, they identified her in a painting that Raphael had done several hundred years uh, earlier. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. It, it had Plato and Aristotle, and oh, it was a uh, painting of the uh, supposed Greek Academy. And there was someone, uh, it looked like a female figure was in there, and they said, well, that has to be Hypatia of Alexandria. Turns out, you know, when that was looked into, it was actually a boyfriend of Raphael the painter. But, <laughs> oh. Sorry. <laughs> And then you know, other painters from the 1700s and 1800s, you know, they uh, created all these European images uh, of Hypatia, and that's really how she got to where she is. I think as, as you get older and you get past what you learned in school and history books, you realize that what you learned in history books are, are not necessarily the reality. Um, that's kind of a frightening realization. Well, that's very true. As they say, you know, it's the conquerors who get to write history. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the Alexandria and the Egypt of the 4th century, it seems uh, very likely that Hypatia could have been of mixed-race heritage. Uh, that Because there was a lot of mixing, and race was not the same consideration then that it is today. And uh, there's a lot of uh, speculation, too, that she was born maybe 20 years earlier than has been conventionally speculated, and that uh, the person who is thought to be her father, uh, Theon, who is the chief, <clears throat> excuse me, chief librarian of Alexandria, possibly was her adoptive father rather than a biological father, and that also was something great. Uh, common for the time. So you can imagine as I started researching this and finding out uh, more and more, which was really kind of finding out less and less, 
that things started to whisper in my ear at night. And they told me, look, there's a great story here that's never been told before. And that's really how the book came, came about. So let's talk about your research. How did you sort fact from fiction? How did you come up with what you say is the story versus all of the <laughs> non-truths that, you know, that, that supposedly are? People uh, have a need, I think, for uh, you know, creating these cultural icons. Like I, I made reference earlier to Helen of Troy, and she represents uh, a certain uh, age. And it seems that uh, certain individuals are selected to represent really sort of uh, astrological ages. You know, Helen uh, represented the age of Aries. Uh, we could say that uh, Hypatia represented the Piscean age, which was also the Christian age. It'll be interesting several hundred years from now to find out, you know, who's going to represent our current astrological age. Fascinating. So, so how long did you spend <clears throat> researching? Uh, well, like I said, I first came upon her about 20 years ago, and uh, I did. I probably did several years of research just into her uh, legend. <clears throat> And then as I started writing, my technique then is to, is to research as I, I go along. Uh, so, so I really had to delve into what was that uh, time like, uh, how were things in the Roman Empire, not only what was going on in Alexandria or Egypt, but throughout the whole empire because there were a lot of changes going on. Uh, the, the Catholic Church was uh, uh, really starting to come into its own uh, in the 4th and 5th centuries uh, A.D. And there were certain struggles that uh, were going on between, within the church as well, uh, which was the uh, right doctrine you know, of the orthodoxy. And there was a lot of persecution going on within Christianity, uh, you know, among Christians to, you know, let's get our story right sort of thing. Uh, and there were a lot of different church councils and things. So, uh, well, for instance, really a lot of Christian uh, theologists and philosophers believed in reincarnation. Well, it took uh, possibly a couple centuries for that to get purged from the doctrine. But uh, and my books uh, deal somewhat uh, with uh, that whole thing of uh, you know what was going on amongst the desert mothers and fathers, uh, as opposed to the urban clergy, uh, for instance. And Hypatia was caught up in all of this, uh, according to me as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. Did you have to take any trips to Egypt to find out more? Well, I, I never got to Alexandria, but yes, I have been in, in Egypt, so it did give me, uh, and a lot of it, still has a, a feel like I uh, think or hope uh, may have been like it, it was originally. Uh, however, one thing that, uh, even though they were around, one thing that does not show up in my book is pyramids. I, those were totally extraneous uh, to the story. <laughs> so, uh, 
But the, the Nile figures greatly in the story because uh, the uh, as a young girl, <clears throat> Hypatia, uh, used to work on the, the rivers catching uh, waterfowl, which she uh, would then take to the market and, and sell. Uh, so that was just something. I did a lot of research into, you know, what were the birds in the uh, 4th century Egypt like? And believe it or not, there are books written on that subject. <laughs> wow. wow. So there's a lot surrounding this. You're, you're looking into more than just her as a person. Obviously, you need to study the times and, as you say, even the environment and nature. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, I mean, one of the surprises that it got, you know, because I had made her uh, this uh, uh, daughter of a uh, Roman uh, soldier from Macedonia, I was surprised to find out, and this was after I had uh, sort of made the uh, character assignations, I was surprised to find out that, in fact, the Roman uh, Macedonian uh, 5th military division was stationed in Alexandria, and uh, northern Egypt. So, and I continually ran into these sort of serendipitous things where uh, it was almost like uh, that time in Egypt was speaking to me. You know, and uh, I won't say I had a connection with Hypatia or anything, but it, it just worked out very well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure after all of that research and visiting Egypt, I'm sure there is a connection with her. I mean, that's a that's a lot of time to spend with one other human. Huh? So I would imagine <laughs> there is a relationship. I've had shorter marriages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's food for another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do part two, right? Yeah, there you go. Oh my gosh. So your rendition and your research leads you to uh, perhaps a different uh, way to look at her. Do you think that those who may have read previous versions of her will come away with, with, a, with, a, different, with a different feel or a different thought after they read your book? Well, I hope so, but, you know, I also think that people create these icons out of the need for, uh, to have like a convenient symbol, uh, a shorthand, to carry certain cultural information and values. Uh, and that's the reason why, uh, Hypatia was Europeanized, because it was the Europeans who at the time sort of stumbled upon her. Uh, you could build an argument that, you know, maybe the, uh, the Arab world would have uh, uh, latched onto her and turned her into something totally different, or the African, or uh, anything else. But she happened to uh, now she's carrying these European values. But I do hope that my book will get people to remember that history, as you said earlier. You know, it's written by the victors. Uh, I just hope they find it to be a good read. Mm-hmm. Have you had much feedback? What have you heard from readers? Uh, well, my first reader and my chief editor is my wife. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she said that the particularly the early part uh, of this novel, it just knocked her socks off because 
uh, I got into the mind of, uh, uh, well, really pubescent uh, young female. I said, how did you do that? <laughs> uh, it, I, it's just a lot of research and, yeah. uh, you know, trying to be honest about uh, what a young girl would be going through. And then as she grows through uh, womanhood and into adulthood, and uh, finally in, into menopause, you know, so I had to do a lot of research into human biology as well mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, talk to people. And then I've had other uh, beta readers, and they pretty much all come away with the same thing. They, they think that it's really quite a story. Mm-hmm. You did something when you entered your book into the Firebirds. You entered into the magical realism and visionary fiction genres, which may seem a right. bit unusual. So uh, tell us about that. Well, yeah, some people would say that this is historical fiction. It's not entirely wrong, but you want the truth. Yes. <laughs> it's partly, partly because historical fiction, it's a very crowded field these days. <laughs> and <laughs> Uh, but the, the Alexandria Scrolls deals a lot with the paranormal, which, though it's always been around, it's hard to document historically. Um, so I, you know, just to be honest, I thought I'd have a better chance than the Firebird Awards with, under those uh, genres. But uh, this, the first novel in the trilogy certainly could be... Uh, Considered, I, I would put it in a subgenre then of historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written book two uh, already, and it happens in modern times. And it's about the uh, fellow who finds the scrolls and translates them. His name is Brandon Blake. Uh, that's more of an action adventure uh, subgenre, if you will. So it's still under visionary and. Uh, magical realism, I would say, too. Interesting. So you're into book two already. Oh, I'm into book three already. Oh, okay. I finished book, th- book two. And so book three is ready to roll out of the chute sometime soon, or is it out? Well, I hope so. It's taken taking me a little while. About uh, maybe a quarter to a third of the way uh, through it. It's a little bit tougher to write because it's taking place in Japan, of all places. And this came about because at the end of book two, I make mention of a a prodigy uh, in Japan who figures something out that had happened in in book two. And I thought, why don't I pick up her story and just bring all of this together? So I'm doing a, a lot of research into Japanese culture and history <clears throat> and their uh, their fairy tales, if you will. Uh, we have a my wife and I have a friend in Japan who's uh, uh, at, works as a translator. She's Japanese national, and she's one of my beta readers. Uh, so I get a lot of uh, insight and advice from uh, Tomoko. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's a fun thing to write. I'll have to say that. 
<laughs> That's great that you have someone kind of boots on the ground that can read what you're writing to to give you some help and direction. And I also imagine just just a research process. I know from when I do research, you start off in one direction and you land in all kinds of places. Once you go down that rabbit hole, there's tunnels that takes you everywhere. <laughs> it's endless as far as where it will take you in future books. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think for the Alexandria Scrolls, uh, I'll very likely stop that at book three, but I'm starting to look at a, a fourth novel, uh, <clears throat> uh, picking up with uh, Hernan Cortez, uh, you know, the conquistador in Mexico, uh, because there's a lot of conflicting legend and myth about him as well. So I've, uh, I've got some books on order that I want to look at and see if this will be worth going into. Wow. So would you consider your books, I know they're part of a series, but are they standalone? Can people pick up book two or do they need to go one, two, three? <clears throat> um, well, the way they're working out, they, they are connected, but I think each one does stand alone. Uh, like I said earlier, the trilogy can be considered visionary fiction or magical realism. However, the, each book falls into, I guess, what you'd call a different uh, subgenre. Um, book three, for instance, uh, the only way I can describe it so far, it's, it's going to be like Japanese manga, but with words and not graphics. Uh, and that's what our Japanese friend told me. So this is, just reads a lot like manga. <laughs> so, okay, I can go with that. So, uh, but that's influencing how I'm going forward with book three as well. Mm -hmm. uh, book two, you know, I say that it's action-adventure. It's kind of a treasure hunt with romance uh, uh, going on, and it's happening in our own time. Um, and the, the lead character, the protagonist, uh, you know, he's sort of a trust fund baby, and, you know, he is able to travel all over the world to yeah, you talk about how the research just takes you down this rabbit hole in all these different directions, you know, and as you were saying that, I'm thinking, gee, that sounds an awful lot like the introduction Pat gave to me in the beginning, you know, because I've just gone off in a lot of different directions. You know, I guess I have sort of a restless nature. Well, let's call it inquisitive. I'll go with that. Let's do that. I like that better. <laughs> you write poetry as well. I do. I started writing poetry in high school. The early ones I did were really sort of spoofs <clears throat> because it just was kind of a fun fun thing to do. <clears throat> and then as I got into college, uh, I started off as uh, an English major uh, and I always wanted to write, but I, I just did not feel I had it in me to be turning out novels at that time. But poetry was something I could uh, get into. And over the years, I refined my uh, my technique, if you will, uh, which is yeah, you know, I, I don't follow necessarily any any form. It's not free verse either. But yeah, I've written close to 500 poems over my life, wow. and also over time got into short stories and flash fiction and a lot of essays. 
every job I've ever had, I did a lot of writing. Uh, people I worked for always said, boy, if we knew you could write like that, we would have hired you just for that. <laughs> and I say, well, I like to do other things, too, besides write. So. <laughs> and how fortunate now that you have the time to write. You can just sit back and write. Do you write every day? Um, I would like to say yes, but I don't. <laughs> Uh, I'm not one of those uh, people who has a uh, set schedule for when I write, although generally I'll do it in the mornings just because I'm a morning person and, you know, my brain is freshest at that time. But, uh, no, I don't write every day. Sometimes I'll sit down to write and one or both of my cats will come up and say, you need to take us out in the backyard for a while uh, or, you know, think ideas just aren't flowing at the time. Right. And uh, I'm not a big believer in writer's block because I, I try to be friends with my unconscious, and I know <clears throat> my unconscious mind is always working on things. So give it time. You know, it'll come out. I, I agree with that. I, I don't like the words writer's block. I mean, block kind of gives you the feeling of something negative, and I don't think we're ever blocked. Maybe we're just not open at the moment because we're thinking and doing something else. And often when you, as you say, if you go out and garden or hang out with your cats, everything opens up because you're not working so hard at it. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. You know, and sometimes you just need the diversion so that inspiration can come through because uh, what if there's a writer's block, I think what causes it is our own thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, we we just get in our way. Um, it it said that you know possibly one of the reasons uh, Hemingway uh, took his own life was because of writer's block. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can't can't speak for it. But uh, yeah, that's kind of extreme. Uh, if the writing dries up, it dries up. You know, that's that's life. You know, go on and do something else. Go out to the garden. Yep. Yep. Well, Hemingway should have hung out with his polydactyl cats, and he might have find some, <clears throat> find some more inspiration, right? That's right. <laughs> I, I forgot that his kitties were polydactyl. I've had a few of those. They're fun. <laughs> Me too. I have a few right now, and they're just so cute with those little extra toes. <laughs> <laughs> little guys. What about the cover, Lukeman? Where did that come from? Yeah, I've done covers for the, uh, all three books in the the trilogy at this point. Uh, one of the things that I, I developed uh, over time was uh, you know, graphic design. And you know, I've uh, done work in that, that field as well. And it, I find it uh, relaxing. It's sort of an alternative route for creativity. Mm -hmm. And doing the covers, I find that they sort of feed back into the writing and the writing feeds into the covers and things like that like that. So uh, doing the one for book one uh, about Hypatia, uh, like I said, I didn't want to do a typical Egyptian sort of scene. Um, yet I wanted to get over uh, this sort of mixed thing about the legend and how that's fixed in stone. So there's this uh, stone-faced image, which I was able to uh, uh, put a little bit of a smirk or a smile on on its face through you know through uh, morphing program, and then I 
superimposed a scene from the Nile over that. You know, it was a river scene with boats on it. Uh, so, and that, it was just something that spoke to me at, at the time. All right, my friend, we've talked about quite a bit today, and I know there's so much more we can we could touch on, but as we begin to wrap up, is there anything in particular that we missed that you wanted to highlight? My uh, wife is retired from uh, UC Riverside, where uh, she she has written books on writing and uh, to get students, uh, you know, to write better. Writing seems to be devalued these days uh, in education uh, for a whole host of, of different reasons, and uh, I think that's really. Uh, a shame because uh, I think students don't realize how helpful good writing can be in their career. And, you know, once you get out into the real world and away from school, uh, you can't always do things the way you want and have them accept it that way. There are certain things you have to do, you know, to make a living. And uh, being able to write in standard English, uh, I know a lot of people hate that phrase, uh, but it's very, very helpful. Yes. Yeah, it's a, you know, communication is you know, a two-way street. And you can't just say, well, I, that's what I, I wrote or that's how I speak and it's up to you to understand me. Mm-hmm. No, you know, you got to come at least halfway, maybe more, so that uh, you can communicate to more people. I agree with you. Yeah, well, I think the pendulum will swing, uh, swing the other direction uh, at some point. And there are still people out there like you know, yourself who are trying to keep uh, good communication alive. Yeah. So, And you as well. So thank you for what you do and all the work that you're doing in writing these books and, and bringing out the truth so that we can understand what what may really have happened historically. All right, well, how about sharing any contact information where folks can find out more about you and where they can purchase your books. Uh, the books aren't ready to be purchased yet. I'm hoping they get published either later this year or early next year. I've uh, been in uh, negotiations, if you will, with a publisher, and we're still you know, trying to work some things out, cover design being one of them. I do have a Facebook page. I, I got back on Facebook after... Uh, several years uh, hiatus just because I got tired of the trolls and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's part of marketing these days, so it's uh, something that has to be done. And they can look up uh, Lukeman Clark, that's L-U-K-M-A-N, and Clark without an E on Facebook, and find out more about me and my books. All right, excellent. We're speaking with Lukeman Clark, and the book we are highlighting is the Alexandria Scrolls. So much more to come from you, so many poems. I just want to... uh, keep talking with you so hopefully we'll have another chance to do this thank you for all that you do thank you for sharing you today and thank you pat it's been a pleasure